You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, would you make your way to the Gospel according to Luke? Gospel according to Luke. Today we're in chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 37 together. Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10. Begin reading in verse 25 through 37. I want to Remind us all, church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and he came to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Over the last few years, several notable people who once professed faith in Christ have publicly renounce their faith in Christ. And when that happens, as you would expect, their deconstruction stories, as they're called, those stories go viral and they garner much attention both among Christians and in the secular public alike. What doesn't go viral and what doesn't make headlines are the stories of people who were once committed to atheism but then place their faith in Christ. 
And one such story is that of Guillaume Benyon. In 2022, he released a book chronicling his journey from atheism to Christianity. It's the title of his book is Confessions of a French Atheist. If you couldn't tell by his name, Guillaume Benyon. The subtitle, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove Christianity. Let me, let me give you just a, a small sampling of Guillaume's backstory. He grew up in France until his mid-20s. There in France, he was forced to go to church, and he attended the Catholic church. But in high school, he began to reject the idea that there was a God. This is what he says. As I began to embrace atheism as a young man, I went far beyond and accepted the presupposition that one had to be stupid to believe in God. So not only did he reject faith and become an atheist, he went as far as to say anyone who would even hold to that idea is stupid. And he gives you this little back um, story to the culture. He writes, to this day, French culture maintains that most Christians must be somewhat simple-minded. That was the cultural error in which he was breathing then, and which is probably true today. See, Guillaume was a committed intellectual atheist until his mid-20s when something happened. He went on a vacation after graduating from college to visit his uncle in St. Martin Islands. And this is what he writes, very first sentence of his book. I didn't expect a vacation in the Caribbean to change my life forever. Somehow, it did. See, something happened on that trip that started Guillaume on a journey of faith that eventually led him to faith in Christ. Guillaume now is a fierce defender of the Christian faith, he has many degrees, and one he has earned is a PhD in philosophical theology. Now, why did I begin today's sermon with this example of this man, Guillaume Vignon, who was once a fierce critic of Christianity and thought that if anybody even believed in a God, you were nothing less than stupid. And now, he is fiercely defending his faith. Why do I bring this up? Because of something from chapter 10, verse 21, in our text from last week, Jesus made a statement. Jesus said something and did something in chapter 10, verse 21. And what he said sheds light not only on Guillaume's story, it reflects the main problem of the character we're about to encounter today. See, this, this character who is about to come to Jesus and ask him a question, him and Guillaume have a lot in common, and chapter 10, verse 21, actually gives us insight. Listen to these, these words. This is from last week's text. It says, in that same hour, he being Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Remember Jesus praying that last week? Lord, thank you. Those who are wise and understand, you have hidden yourself from and you have revealed yourself to little children. See, in the passage before us today, we, we will meet a man who is similar to Guillaume, but he's on the opposite side of the spectrum. He was not an atheist. He was a theologian. And yet, his so-called knowledge kept him from trusting Christ. It was his knowledge of, I know not only big questions about the world, I even know the Bible so well. And yet, he was missing the very embodiment of Revelation standing right in front of him. See, I believe Luke placed this particular story and the one we're going to look at next week, he, he placed it in this passage, or in this section, I believe, to illustrate chapter 10, verse 21. Today's story illustrates God hiding himself from the wise and the learning. And next week's story, when we meet Mary and Martha, she's going to represent someone God has revealed himself to. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our passage. I want to break it down into three sections based on three significant questions. Here's the first question I want us to consider. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. That's our first section. Look at at verse 25 again. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice how this passage begins. It begins with the words, behold. Luke Luke uses this word strategically. This is his way at this point to kind of get our attention. In case you've fallen asleep, in case your eyes have glazed over, in case you're just kind of mentally tuned down. He goes, whoa, behold, here's the story. Let me tell you this. And notice how this passage begins. Luke doesn't tell us when this story took place are where this story took place. Luke just inserts it here to illustrate the points he was just making. He he just sits this story here, and all of a sudden, without any context, this, this lawyer in the crowd, he pipes up to ask Jesus a question. No backstory, no context, just here's this guy, And he stands up and says, Jesus, I want to ask you something. We're told he's a lawyer. Now, this isn't referring to someone with a law degree. No, a lawyer in this context was a scholar in regards to the Mosaic law. In other words, this man was a theologian. And he's looking for a debate. And I say that because even before we hear his question, did did you notice this? Even before we hear his question, Luke informs us of his motives. Before we even hear his question, Luke says, I need to tell you something. This man was wanting to test Jesus. That's why he's asking this question. 
And actually, the, the question he asked Jesus was a good one. It's, a, it's actually a great question. What's problematic is the reason that he's asking it. He's not asking out of sincerity. Have you ever been in a conversation like that with someone? Well, they may be asking a really good question, but you know full well they're not asking it sincerely. They're not asking you that question because they're dying to hear what you're going to say. They may be trying to trap you. They may be trying to stump you. They may be trying to, not that parents have ever had this happen with their children, but they may be trying to get out of something. And there's a question being asked. And it, it's not a question being asked because the person asking the question is saying, oh, please enlighten me. That's what this guy is doing. He's asking this, this question with the wrong motives. And because of what we know so far, because of Luke's little side comment, that this man, we, we know he's not interested in the truth. He's not interested in the truth, and he's most definitely not coming to Jesus in order to be instructed. So, let, let's take a moment and consider his question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His motives are wrong, but what a great question. That single question is by far the most important question anyone could ever ask. There is not a more important question out of all the questions that have been raised in thousands and thousands of years by philosophers there is not a greater question one could ask of how do I inherit eternal life? Do you, you remember what Jesus said back in chapter 9? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? This man is asking a good question. And yet... Jesus, knowing full well the motives of this man's heart, look what he does. He refuses to answer the question. Instead, he asks the theologian a question, verses 26 and 27. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Do you notice what this man just did? This man summarizes the entire Mosaic law. And remember, he's a scholar. He knows the, the law of God frontwards and backwards, the ins and the outs, the intricacies. And Jesus says, okay, well, tell me, what, 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 what's the law about? And this guy sums up the entire law with one word, love. Love God and love your neighbor. Is he right? Well, listen to what Jesus says in verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Jesus, even though he knows the motives of this man's heart, says, well, you know, you're a teacher of the law. How do you read the law? The guy gives him an answer. 
Well, you got to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You got to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good job. Theology exam, you pass. Did a great job. Jesus actually says the exact same thing in Matthew 22 when he's asked a similar question. This guy is spot on. But it's what Jesus says at the end that's got a sting to it. He says, go, do this, and you'll live. So far, so good. You're, you're spot on. So go. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, according to Leviticus 18.5, obey the law and you will inherit eternal life. Now, you may be scratching your head at this point saying, what in the world is going on? Jesus appears to be promoting law-keeping instead of calling this man to repentance and faith. Shouldn't he be saying, don't you know I'm on my way to Jerusalem to die for lawbreakers and you're a lawbreaker? So follow me. Jesus, come on, speak up. And that's not what Jesus does. Why? Why does Jesus appear to be promoting law keeping instead of calling this man to faith and repentance? Because Jesus was a wise evangelist. Jesus was a wise evangelist, and as a wise evangelist, Jesus knew that this man was already convinced he was a great lawkeeper. He's, he's certain he's a good lawkeeper, and he probably has suspicions that Jesus is promoting teaching that contradicts the law. So Jesus challenges the man to live according to the standard in which he believed he would gain eternal life. Hey, man, you're spot on. You, you, you do know the law. So, go do it. See what Jesus is doing? It's almost that question of, and then come back and tell me how that's working for you. If you think that's what it means, then go and do it. In reality, this man couldn't, and no man can. There is only one man who has perfectly kept the law of God, and that is Jesus Christ. That's why, that's why we so welcome the good news of the gospel, right? That's why we've been singing about it this morning, that our relationship with God isn't based on our law-keeping. Because if it was, none of us, None of us would inherit eternal life. See, we, we, we must not make mis any mistake about what's happening here. This man's question, though it's a good one, and though it may reflect a curious heart, he's not a desperate man. He's not a desperate man. He's not coming to Jesus and saying, oh, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? He's not the people in, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches his messages and says they were cut to the heart and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? That's not what this guy's doing. He may have a lot of questions. He may even be a seeker. He may be curious, but he's not desperate. And that becomes even more apparent when the lawyer asks a follow-up question. 
See, at this point, he should have just fallen down, repented, and said, I cannot keep God's law. Save me, Jesus. But he's not done, sadly. That brings us to question two. Who is my neighbor? Verses 25 through 35. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus... And who is my neighbor? I think it goes without saying that this man was not asking Jesus questions to arrive at truth. He was seeking, he was asking this particular question to protect his image and to promote his own knowledge. That's what it means when it says seeking to justify himself. He, he, he doesn't respond how he should have responded. He digs his heels in. To save face, to protect his image, and to promote his own knowledge, he asks this question. And his reason for asking the question is, if part of keeping the law is not only loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but loving your neighbors yourself, the guy says, well, let me, I, I know who the Lord is. He's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. But, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Think for a moment what this lawyer was doing by asking Jesus this question. It seems like he just wants to keep the debate going. He just wants to keep the debate going in order to keep up his facade and to make everyone think that he wasn't phased by Jesus' response to his question. Because that last little bit when Jesus says, okay, we'll go and live. The guy's got his back in a corner. And instead of responding differently, he just said, well, who is my neighbor, Jesus? To keep the debate going and to keep the spotlight on where it should be. Which is why Jesus changes his tactic and from this point forward, he goes straight to the heart. He goes straight to the heart and you know how he does it? He now moves from asking questions to telling a story. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now, Luke doesn't say it's a parable here, but that's clearly what Jesus is doing. This is not a true story. It's a story Jesus is using to illustrate a spiritual truth, but every bit of it would have had truth to it. If you know anything about the terrain of that day, if you're coming down from Jerusalem, which is elevated, you're making your way down those roads. They're windy, there's rocks, there's crevices, there's there's caves where often you were in danger on your way to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem. That's why, that's why I go back and look at Psalm 121 later. It's one of the journey psalms. Why they're crying out, Lord, protect us, watch over us, keep our step. Because they're knowing on their way to Jerusalem, it's dangerous. And Jesus says, well, it's, it's, it's like a man. And he's coming down from Jerusalem and he makes his way down the road and he gets attacked. And this guy isn't just mugged. Somebody doesn't just take his wallet. They beat him up and leave him half dead in the gutter. He's laying over on the side, and if no one comes to his aid, he will die. And then Jesus says, verse 31, 
Now by chance, so it happened, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by him on the other side. Boy, can you imagine the, the audience listening to this story? Here is this man in the ditch. He will die if unattended. And a lawyer, someone who knew the law better than anyone, the lead, one of the leaders of Israel, he sees the man and just turns and walks on. To make matters worse, verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, another Jewish religious leader, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's building this anticipation. Everybody in the crowd's like, really? Who's going to help this guy? If the priest walked by him and the Levite walked by him, who in the world is going to help this man? He's dying. Somebody help him. And what Jesus does next is brilliant. And it's unexpected. Most parables have a, a surprising twist, and here's the surprising twist. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now Jesus, knowing his hearers, imagine the original audience hearing this story and imagine Luke's original audience. Here's probably what they would have expected. Of course, of course, the, the priest doesn't do it. They knew how, as we'll see, the closer we get to Jerusalem, the, the priests aren't commendable. Well, of course they didn't. And the Levites failed. So you know what they expected? A common Jewish man would probably come along and be the hero of the story. And Jesus surprises them because the hero of the story is a Samaritan. Once again, if you're unaware of this, I know we spoke about it a little bit in the past, but if you're unaware of this, Jews and Samaritans hate one another. Hate one another. Why is this? Well, really quickly, here, here's, here's the backstory. Samaria was originally a city that was founded by King Omri, and it became the capital of the northern kingdom. So if I could just give you some Old Testament history really fast. Remember, after Solomon, the kingdom divided, and there's Judah, and there's Israel, the northern tribe. And Israel, the northern tribe, they, they say, because of their, their king says, you know what, we're going we're gonna to come back together again if people have to keep going to Jerusalem to worship, so we're going to be our own people, we're going to have our own king, we're going to reject the Davidic line, we're going to reject Jerusalem, that's why they hate Jerusalem, we're going, to, we're going to create our own places of worship, and we're only going to believe in the Mosaic law. Now why would they only believe in the Mosaic law? Because 
So much of the rest of the Bible talks about David and Judah and the promise. And so eventually, King Omri, he, he creates this city called Samaritans, or Samaria. And eventually, over time, the Samaritans, especially after the exile in Assyria, when God's people start coming back, these Jews intermarried with other pagans, and therefore, all of a sudden, these Jews became half-breeds. Half-breeds and heretics. Because they reject many of the things the Lord told them that they were to believe. So they're hated by Jews. And then to make matters worse, in 128 B.C., there was a major thing that took place when all of a sudden their temple, which sat on Mount Gerizim, was destroyed by Jews. There was an uprising in 128 B.C., and their temple, instead of sitting on Mount Zion, it sat on Mount Gerizim, and it was destroyed. So there is much animosity between the two groups. And Jesus knew this. So why did Jesus use the Samaritan as an example of what it means to love one's neighbor? I mean, the guy asked the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells this story, and the hero of the story, so to speak, is this hated Samaritan. Why would he do this? Well, Jewish writers from the time of Christ, men like Josephus, they, they reveal the sentiment of that day. Most Jews of that day believe that Samaritans and other Gentiles, when, when, the, when the law says you have to love your neighbor, they weren't considered neighbors. So they weren't breaking God's law, though God never said that. They had decided, well, obviously the Lord doesn't mean those people. And Jesus, knowing that, when he asked this question, who is my neighbor? Jesus brings up one of the people, not only that they hate, but one of the people that they've excluded from loving their neighbor. See, Jesus consciously used this half-breed heretic to demonstrate what the love of neighbor was like. And by using this Samaritan as an example, Jesus is obviously highlighting the prejudice of most Jews. And in particular, Jesus could have told any other story. So though Luke doesn't tell us here, it would not make sense had Jesus used this story and this guy didn't hate Samaritans. Jesus knows it's kind of like the woman at the well when he says, where's your husband? Jesus knew. That's why he said, let me bring up a, a people you can't stand. I'm going to bring them up. But the greater point of emphasis is that Jesus is highlighting here a major theme of Luke's gospel, a theme we, we talked about some time ago. It's the theme of reversal. Reversal takes place in Luke's gospel many times. For instance, in Luke's gospel, it's often insiders that appear to be outsiders. It's the people closest to Jerusalem that appear to be furthest away. It's those that, you, you, that would know the law and, and that get to make sacrifices that can't stand Jesus. And it's the harlots and it's the tax collectors who welcome him. See, often in Luke's gospel, insiders appear to be outsiders, and outsiders appear to be insiders. 
And in this parable, look, look, look at this. Neither the priest or the Levite or the lawyer exemplified what it meant to keep the law of God. You see what Jesus is doing here? He gives an example of a priest, a Levite, and if you include this lawyer, here are people who should be keeping God's law who aren't. And the one person in this story who is, is the last person everyone would have expected and the last person on earth they would have wanted Jesus to honor. See, I believe it's strategic what Jesus is doing here. I love what one commentator, Del Davis, said. He says, the priest and the Levite personify, as does this law expert himself, they, they personify Judaism. Not every individual Jew, but Judaism at that time. They depict the deficiencies of Judaism. For all of its sacrifices and prayers and devotions and fastings and ceremonies, it can still be on the whole cold and formal and lifeless and dead. He says, by the parable, Jesus says, if loving your neighbor as yourself has anything to do with life eternal, it's clear that you, the priest, the Levite, and anyone else who represents Judaism, that you do not have it because you do not love. And on the flip side, the Samaritan whom you regard as the scum of the earth will go into the kingdom of God before you. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's turning the tables and reorienting how this man is seeing everything. And that's why he poses a question at the end of this parable to this man. Question number three. What kind of neighbor am I? Verses 36 and 37. Listen to Jesus. After he finishes this parable, he asks the guy, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? See what Jesus is doing? He's reframing the debate and he's turning the tables on the lawyer. The real question, according to Jesus, isn't who is my neighbor? Instead, it's what kind of neighbor am I? See, the question now moves from the theoretical to the practical and to the personal. Jesus is saying to, to, to them, and this passage is saying to us, do I love people in front of me who are in need like this Samaritan did? Do I love them no matter their ethnic background, their cultural baggage, their moral and religious differences? Am I willing to sacrifice money and time for them? And is my heart moved towards compassion for their plight? See, the question Jesus asked this lawyer, it, it demanded a response. Listen to the response. Jesus said, which one of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he says, the one who showed him mercy. 
And first notice, did you notice he didn't say Samaritan? Even at this point, he can't utter those words. Yes, the man who showed mercy, Jesus. You almost just see him. Okay, your point, you made your point, Jesus. I'm not saying who he is. And then Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Now that phrase, you go and do likewise, it communicates a couple of things that's worth our consideration. First of all, go, go and do likewise also means go show mercy to those around you like the Good Samaritan. Do you remember what the Samaritan says? Who, who's, the, who's the good neighbor, Jesus asked? The one who showed mercy. So therefore, to be a good neighbor is to show mercy. And if you are a good neighbor, you are loving and fulfilling the law. But go and do also highlights another theme in Luke's gospel. Another theme that we've already reflected on and talked about a number of times but it's worth emphasizing here. Do you remember back in chapter 6 when Jesus told, gave this analogy and he says there's, there's people who hear what I'm saying and they hear it and it's like a man who gets all the materials and he builds this incredible house on sand. And the wind comes and the rain comes and it just blows his house away. But in Luke 6 verse 47 he says, but those who hear... And get this, and do my word are those that build their house on the rock. So when Jesus says go and do, this is a theme we've heard Jesus talk about before. So that brings us to our takeaway this morning. It's not enough to talk about our faith. We must live it out. See, that's all this guy wants to do. He wants to be in debates. He wants to, well, can we, can we define that? You know, can, can, well, I have another question. And at some point, Jesus is saying, enough with the questions. Let me just ask you this. What are you doing? <laughs> we can talk till we're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, what are you doing? See, our faith isn't just something to be talked about. It must be lived out. And what does that look like for us this morning? Well, in light of this parable, there are many implications we could draw out of it, but in light of this parable, I think one of the questions we must all ask ourselves is this, where might certain areas of prejudice be keeping me from obeying God and loving my neighbor? Can I just encourage you with this thought? If this parable has not left you feeling uncomfortable and convicted, you need to read it again. If you read this parable and you don't see yourself in the mirror, or if anything, the Samaritan's not the hero, you are reading it wrong so here's the question I want to encourage you to ask who are your Samaritans none of us can say well there aren't any really 
aren't people whom God has called us to love and sacrifice for that may be so different from us, that may even hate us. And we know the Bible says love your enemy, but God, you, you, there must be an asterisk at the bottom except, except those kind of people. Who are your Samaritans? Here's what else we can learn from this passage. We can learn to be winsome evangelists just like Jesus. Jesus puts on a clinic in evangelism here. And one of the things Jesus does so well and so wisely, and maybe you're good at this, but I have to admit I'm I'm horrible at this. As, As a talker, as a guy who teaches, I love, I love to talk. I, I think, man, if I can explain it well enough, people will get it. And guess what Jesus does time and time again? He asks questions. One scholar went through the four gospel, and he took all the times in which someone's engaging Jesus with questions, and he, he counted them up in each gospel. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus asked 82 questions, and all in the context of evangelism. He doesn't say, don't you know I'm the great I am? He doesn't launch into a sermon. This guy says, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts with where there's God. Well, what do you think the law says? He asks him questions. The late apologist of the Christian faith, a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer, some of you who are probably... Over 40 or 50 will know that name, a man who here in the United States was, was well known as a defender of the faith. He, he said this, he said, if I only had one hour with someone, I would spend 55 minutes asking them questions and five minutes trying to say something that would speak to their situations once I knew what was going on in their heart and mind. The great apologist Francis Schaeffer, who could argue about anything, who had knowledge about science and philosophy and theology and politics. If you know who he is, you know how brilliant he was. And he didn't go into the room and say, sit down, I know everything, ask me your questions and let's go. He said, if I had an hour, I would spend 55 minutes with my mouth closed and the only time it would be open to say, okay, so you said this, what does that mean? And then the last five minutes, I'd finally open my mouth in light of what I've heard to say something meaningful. Oh man, what a great, what a great example. Lastly, I think we, we learn another lesson about evangelism from Jesus. Not only was he a great question asker, Jesus does something strategic here. He does something really important that we often can fail to do or do too quickly. And he brings, and that's that he brings the law of God to bear on the heart of those who are listening before he brings the gospel. You might be thinking, where's the gospel in this passage? It's not there. This guy's not ready to hear the gospel because the gospel is for sinners. And this guy thinks, I'm a lawkeeper. And Jesus says, you will never get on the road to Calvary until you realize what a wretch and a mess you are. 
And that you, in all of your pride and arrogance, think you have it all down and that you know the Bible until you repent and feel the weight of your sin. I have nothing else to say. And this won't be the first time. We're not told all the details, so we don't want to speculate. But we know later on in Luke 18, do you know that a man, Jesus, has a similar conversation when we get there? And it goes the same way, and it says the man walked away. And you know what Jesus didn't do? Wait, wait, wait. Okay, okay, okay. Maybe that was too harsh. Maybe Let me say it nicer. He said, you had to hear that. Hopefully, hopefully you'll hear it. And when you lay in bed at night, it'll come to you. But you got to hear the law before the gospel can be good news. I love this track we have on our back table. Speaking of evangelism, I would encourage you to get some and familiarize yourself with this track. This is from a fellow Sovereign Grace pastor called How Good Are You? And I love this track because it's not a track you just give to people and say, oh, here, here, read this. You can say, well, I did evangelism. No, sit down with someone. Say, hey, can I talk to you? And one of the things this track is meant to do is meant to ask people questions. Questions like Jesus was asking. On a scale of one to 10, how good are you? That's why the track's called that. Somebody might say, well, I'm a four. Why do you think you're a four? Well, I'm a seven. Okay, seven's not bad. Why do you say you're a seven? And it brings the law to bear so that then they can hear the good news. So I want to encourage you, if you're looking for a resource It can just help you know how to engage someone so that you can bring both the law and the gospel. This is a wonderful resource. If we run out, we will gladly get more. Now in closing, listen. Though the gospel isn't explicit in this passage, once again, we almost read every passage in light of the whole, in light of all of Luke, in light of the rest of the New Testament. And even just in light of this passage today, here's what this passage should cause us all to do. Cling to the mercy of Christ. Because none of us are law keepers. And we don't have a relationship with God based on our law keeping. Praise God. (laughs) We know Him and are known by Him and are loved by Him because of Jesus and Jesus alone so may we be people who this very day and this very week as we are aware of our own sin we don't justify ourselves like this man did but we run to the mercy of christ let's be those kind of people that run to the mercy of christ let's pray Father, we thank you for your good word to us today. That it has done the good work 
you intended for it to do. I pray that now as we disperse, that that good work would continue. And for some, it might be realizing that their reason for not being committed to you, it's not because they have good reasons. It's because of a rebellious heart that only you can change. And yet you are eager and able to change it. And if they turn to you and they ask for mercy, mercy is all they will receive. For us, Lord, as your people who have come to unawareness of our sin and know that apart from you, Lord, we have no standing before you. We have no right to be in relationship with you. If anything, we deserve your judgment. Lord, may we be a people who cling to the mercy of Christ because, Lord, we we are aware of how far we've fallen and how, how little we love the way we should. Lord, help us to be people who love better and that we not be like this man who just loved those who we like to love, who are easy to love, who love us in return. May we love those, Lord, that you love and that are hard to love, but they need to be loved by us so that they can know the God who loves them. Help us to be that kind of church and that kind of people. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. May we now scatter as we've gathered. Now may we scatter to proclaim the good news of Jesus to those we come in contact this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.